You know, there are some people who think that if they do something good enough, if not precise in particular, that it is indeed good enough. But if you know, uh, if the uh, IRS, for example, did things 99.9% right, then uh, every, uh, every year they would lose 2 million documents. 22,000 checks would be deducted from the wrong bank in the next hour if 99.9% is good enough. 5.5 million cases of soft drinks would arrive flat every year if 99.9% is good enough. Doctors would write 20,000 incorrect, incorrect drug prescriptions every year if 99.9% is good enough. And each day, 12 babies would be given to the wrong parents. You know, sometimes we wonder. But anyway, <laughs> that aside, if 99.9% is good enough, these things would happen. You know something? Demons would love for you to get 99.9% of salvation in the Christian faith right and be wrong on the other 0.1%. The message and the subject, actually, that I am sharing with you today is absolutely the most important topic you will ever hear in your life. It defines God, it defines His Word, and it makes you secure in the next life. Now, I've said uh, on a number of occasions, you and I are going to be dead a lot longer than we're going to be alive. We're going to live on the other side of the grave much longer than here. You've got to get this one right. And it's the doctrine of salvation. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 are a couple of texts I want us to look at this morning. And here, Paul compares salvation to a Roman soldier's helmet. Now, the helmet on display today on the platform is very similar, very much like the helmets that Roman soldiers wore in their day. They were usually made of leather, co covered with some metal, and they have cheek pieces on which to, uh, which to guard them. And what Paul says here is, is that salvation functions like a helmet in spiritual warfare. And that's what he says in verse number 17. And he said, take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation in context of spiritual warfare. So just as you can protect your head by putting it into a helmet, whether a motorcycle helmet or a football helmet or a helmet that a soldier might wear, just as you can protect your head by putting it into a helmet, so you can protect your walk if you will put your head into salvation. And there are several ways to do that in the book of Ephesians. Now, we come to the word salvation in Ephesians chapter 6, and we need to ask the question, what does Paul mean by salvation in the book of Ephesians? Well, let's look how he uses that word in the book of Ephesians, and that's going to give us some direction uh, into what we put our heads. We need to consume ourselves with these things. We need to uh, be occupied with these things. And the first thing is this, the benefits of salvation. Chapter 1, verse number 13, Paul elaborates on that. In fact, he summarizes the benefits of salvation beginning back in verse number 3. But let's read verse 13 of chapter 1 where he talks about the gospel of salvation. In Christ you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. 
The gospel of your salvation. Gospel is the Greek word euangelion. You good angelion news. It is the good news of salvation. Of God's intervention to rescue us from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Now a very shocking Pew Research poll came out last week that showed 44% of liberal Democrats believe that the church does more harm than good. Not trying to get political here, but that's quite shocking. Now, if I were like some of them, I would immediately accuse them of what? Racism, because I'm sure there isn't a single African-American Christian that's a Democrat that answered in that fashion at all. Now, I'm not like them, so I won't accuse them of that. But the truth is, there are a significant number of people in the nation that think the church does more harm than good. And African-American scholar George Yancey, University of North Texas, has found that 38% of liberals in the United States, educated liberals, would remove civil rights from evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians. If they could, they couldn't run for public office, they couldn't homeschool or private school their children, they, um, they could not teach them the tenets of the Christian faith, they couldn't teach them but, uh, anything but naturalistic evolution in home regarding the basis of science and a variety and host of other things. They, they could not even work for the government in some cases in some respects. Ladies and gentlemen, they don't view the gospel as good news, but God has something else to say about it. It is the gospel, good news, of God's rescue of human life. And it reminds me of Jeff, Jeff Tisdale. Uh, in my first pastorate, we uh, saw Jeff come to the Lord, and God radically changed his life. And as God changed his life, he began to make amends and fix some of the things he'd done before. Before he came to Jesus, he'd been a high school Satanist and drug dealer. And we had a terrible, awful drug dealing problem and drug problem in Williamsburg County, South Carolina. And we couldn't figure out why. It was 25 miles off of Interstate 95. And um, it was a dinky little place, about 4,000 in the city, 37,000 in the county. Why is it that we surpassed Clemson, the county where Clemson University is located, for marijuana use and drug use, where they had a major college campus and university? We surpassed Richland County, where Columbia uh, is located, University of South Carolina. How in the world can this little place do that? Well, Jeff uh, began to get under conviction, and he talked to one of our youth leaders who then went to a state senator who happened to be one of our deacons. And they talked together, and uh, the state senator had the powers of home rule, launched an investigation in the county, and in six months, the sheriff was arrested because he had taken payments from Jeff before Jeff came to Jesus Christ. And the drug trade plummeted. And decline. Listen, God saved one young man and destroyed the work of the devil in that county through one salvation. Hey, you line me up the, uh, the converts and the improvements from atheism and liberalism and secularism, and you tell me that they have ever changed and radically transformed the county because of their philosophies and their thoughts. And I'll tell you, Jesus Christ surpasses them all. His gospel is good news. In fact, all their criticisms of the gospel make as much difference with the gospel as a Nerf gun does with Mount Rushmore. It just doesn't happen. The benefits of salvation. Now Paul elaborates on this in chapter 1, verse 3. Look what he says. And this defines the whole theme of verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Now, that's not the future. That is the past. The moment you come to Jesus Christ, 
God delivers to you all the purchased possession of Jesus Christ. He gives to you all the blessings you could ever have in heavenly places. Those that are reserved there for you, they come into your life now. One evangelist said, Jesus not only carries your soul to heaven, He brings heaven to your soul. And this is what happens when you come to Christ. And so, you put your head into this and meditate and reflect and marinate in the truth that you're blessed in Jesus Christ. It makes all the difference in the world. And at the end of the message today, we're going to give you the opportunity to do that. I'll finish my message, and there are finishes and ends to sermons, by the way. Uh, But um, I'll finish it, and we'll sing a song, and we will invite you to Repent and turn away from the direction you're going now and turn to Jesus Christ and trust His cross and resurrection. Our staff will be here to help you with that decision. And maybe God, uh, uh, maybe today's the day that you'll give your heart and life to Christ. Or maybe you have and you need to follow Him in baptism or join Beach Haven. This is the way to have victory over spiritual warfare is to put your head into the benefits of salvation. But second, not only the benefits of salvation, but the need of salvation. Demons desire for you to focus on yourself when thinking about salvation. Demons want you to think and focus on your behavior and your moral qualities anytime you think about getting right with God. And you start thinking, well, this is what I need to do. I need to take these measures and these practical steps. I need to implement them in order to make myself right with God. You'll be doing that all the way the rest of this life. And after 10,000 years in judgment and eternal death, you'll still be doing it. No human can make himself or herself right with God. Look at chapter 2, verse 5, where he picks up on this term. He says, Even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. Now, we were dead in trespasses and sins before coming to Christ, and God made us alive together in Jesus Christ. Dead, made us alive, by grace you've been saved. Do you know why God has got to intervene to save us and why we can't save ourselves? Because that part of us that needs to be made right with God is dead. Folks, I've done more than 100 funerals in my ministry. It's approaching 200 now. And do you know what? You know what the corpse does in every funeral? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. I don't mean to be, to be disrespectful, but the corpse is dead. Whenever we're outside of Jesus Christ, that part of us that needs to get right with God first is dead. And we contribute... We contribute as much to our salvation as a corpse does to the funeral. Very, very little. In other words, we can't contribute anything to being made right with God because we are dead in trespasses and sins, and only the supernatural intervention of God by His grace can ever save us. That's why the only thing that God calls for from us is to repent and believe the gospel. And so we place our hope and faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Now, um, it seems like about every Sunday in this series and every other series, we're saying something similar to that. Do you know why that is? Because it keeps appearing in the text. The human tendency and the human trajectory is to always lean towards human works, human virtue, and moral qualities, moral character, and then to wildly exaggerate them before God as if we are entitled to heaven, like we're entitled to the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. Friends, we're entitled to nothing before God. 
but hell. That's it. And heaven is not an entitlement for American citizens or citizens of anywhere. It's not even an entitlement that we have merited as Christians. It is always, from beginning to end, a gift of God's grace. And so it appears so often in the Bible because the human tendency is to exaggerate our righteousness, to exaggerate our moral character. And so God has to constantly repeat it from Genesis to Revelation and beat it in our heads so it never, ever goes away. And the big, big problem so often with the doctrine of salvation and the experience of salvation is not the lost world. I mean, the vast majority of people I've witnessed to are wildly open, remarkably open to the gospel of Christ. It's when Christians get saved and then they get bored with it or they get over it. And when that happens, we become terribly vulnerable to demonic attack. And so the first thing we need to put our head into is the benefit, the benefits of salvation, then the need for salvation. We need it because we're dead in trespasses and sins, and the only way to be made right with God is to trust His cross and His empty tomb. But there's a third thing, and that happens to be the moment of salvation. Demons want you to be indefinite about when you were saved. They want you to say such things as, well, I grew up in a Christian family. I've always believed. No, I, I, I think you Baptists and Pentecostals are a little too excited about this and take it too seriously. You want us to define a point in time when you're saved. Well, I've always believed. Oh, my goodness, you've got to be careful with that. Listen, let me make sure you understand. It doesn't matter what Pentecostals say, and it doesn't matter what the Baptists say or non-denominational. It doesn't matter what any religious human has to say at all. What matters is what God's Word says. That's what. It, now look with me in chapter 5. Look what comparison the Apostle Paul makes in verses 23 through 24 regarding salvation. Look at the image he uses. Beginning in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior, same root word as salvation, he's the Savior of the body. So just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Not all men, but their husbands. In other words, what Paul does here is that he compares salvation to marriage. And let me make real clear to you. On October the 5th, 1990, I was not married. I sure wanted to be. Of course, it reminds me that, uh, of a pastor who was going to do a wedding service right at the end of the worship service on Sunday. And he got up and preached his message and realized he couldn't remember the names of the couple that was supposed to get married. So he tried a ministerial recovery. And when he was done, he said, Would those who want to be married today come forward? And 24 people came forward. <laughs> you see, they knew they were not married. So on October the 5th, 1990, I was not married. On October the 6th, at about 10.30 a.m., I was married. In fact, I'll go so far as to say to you this. At 9.30 October the 6th, on that Saturday morning, Maryville, Tennessee, I was not married. By 10.30, an hour later, I was married. There was a definite crossover from being single to married. There is a definite point where you're lost and a definite point when you're saved. Whether you grew up in a Christian home or whether you lived a wild, reckless, secular life and came to Jesus later, there is a point in time where you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And it may be, 
you may not remember the date. I mean, half of you can't remember the date of your anniversary. Well, you may not remember the date when you came to Jesus Christ. Don't admit it, but you may not remember the date that you came to Jesus Christ. But the experience should be memorable. And that's why uh, oftentimes we'll have children come forward who are beginning to awaken to the reality of salvation and the opportunity to give themselves to Christ, but they cannot clearly pinpoint a time, a memorable, definitive conversion experience, and so we'll have them come forward and we'll ask the church to start praying for them. And all of my ministry, within six months, those kids meet Jesus and they come to Him. We call that a first step towards Jesus. It's not a profession of faith. But listen to me. You cannot place your hope in the fact that you were raised up in a Christian family and that you've always believed in Jesus. Oh no, there needs to be a point in time where you come as a broken, guilty sinner before God and you know you need the grace of God and you repent and place faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The salvation gift of God is the same for all. It doesn't differ. And there needs to be a point in time. Now, if you don't have that point in time in your life, I will tell you this, demons are going to harass you and torture you into distraction and possibly into depression. Make sure that you get it settled right. Now, let me give you a little exercise here. If we need to talk about this, we'll be very happy to do so. But let me give you a little exercise here. Take the very small and short book of 1 John and read it through every day for seven days and ask yourself this question. When did that begin to happen to me? John talks about that crossover. You know, I talked about being single, then married. Well, he talks about being lost, then saved. He uses several metaphors for that. And he says, when you're lost, you do this. But once you become saved, you do this. And it's clear. It's definitive. There is a difference that is made. And I need to tell you, listen, if there is no change, there is no Jesus. Jesus makes a change in life. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And if you don't settle that and pinpoint it, they're going to torture you to distraction. And Deal Moody, I think, was right. He said, I've never known anyone used mightily of God that doubted his or her salvation. Hey, it's time to move past all of this, and it's time to get it right. And so the moment of salvation. But there's a fourth thing you need to put your head into, and that is the coming of salvation. The coming of salvation. There's more to come in salvation. Salvation really in the Bible is all-encompassing of time. There's a past salvation, if we know Christ now, there's a past salvation where Jesus rescued us from the penalty of sin. He's canceled it. It's gone. It's secure. It's accomplished. If you know Christ is Savior, there's nothing yet to do. It's already been done in the cross and the resurrection. And ladies and gentlemen, I've got good news for you. Jesus isn't going back into that tomb. He's always alive, and if He is alive, you are safe with God. Once saved, always safe. Now, that, of course, that means, some critics would say, that means you can go out and live any way you want to. No, when you come to Jesus, you've done live the way you want to. You have a life that is consistently, not perfectly, but consistently obedient to Him. So that's past salvation. Then there's present salvation, where He gives you power by the Holy Spirit to overcome sin and to have victory. Now, I don't believe in irresistible grace, but I do believe in irresistible sanctification. There will be a growing obedience, a growing Christ-likeness in heart and life when we come to Jesus Christ as Savior. So there is past salvation where He rescues us from the penalty of sin, present salvation where He rescues us from the power of sin, and then 
There's more salvation, future salvation coming where He will rescue us, thank God, finally from the presence of sin. In other words, can you imagine this? Can you imagine a land and a place and an environment and every relationship and every operation and every imagination of a place where sin does not taint it at all? In other words, can you imagine the return of the Garden of Eden? Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is going to bring it. And that's what really he's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Put on that helmet, that helmet of future salvation. And, and really he refers to this in chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. What he's doing with his bride, the church. This is what he's doing with us. He is nurturing and caring and cherishing and building his bride, the local church, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. An excellent model for every husband, by the way. And that's the point here. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her, and that church, this is your future. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. That is the future of the children of God. And Paul really expands on this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. Turn a few pages over where he talks about the helmet of salvation, but adds a couple of words here to elaborate on our understanding. Verse number 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That salvation that is to be brought to us. Now, he has secured past salvation. We're struggling with current salvation. In the future, he will bring it. He will come and eliminate all wickedness and all evil at every level and structure of society, from the personal to the governmental. All evil and wickedness shall be vanquished, and eliminated is what he'll do. And he will bring his kingdom. And if you know Jesus, you get to be part of it. Now Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He said, uh, those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And those that uh, have died in Christ uh, will be resurrected first. But he begins that passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, by saying that... Um, the Lord will descend with the shout of an archangel. Now, there were some Bible students in a Ugandan Bible school who were listening to a professor talk about that passage, and he began to elaborate as best he could on the shout of the archangel when he comes to bring about the end, the restoration, the return of Christ, and the elimination of evil. He will descend with the shout of an archangel. And one of the students says, what will he shout? And the professor said, I don't know. What do you all think? Now, these students had grown up under the terror and the tyranny of Idi Amin. Some of them had limbs that had been amputated and cut off, and many of them had scars and wounds from beatings under his regime and administration. And one of the students said, Professor, I believe that when Jesus comes back with a shout, he's going to shout, Enough! Enough! The cross was Enough. Salvation is secure and accomplished. There'll be mental salvation. Enough of the hallucinations and fears and anxieties. They shall all hush. And 
God's people will be at perfect peace because their minds are stayed on Him. There'll be physical salvation. Enough disease and dismemberment and enough of the graves. Blind eyes will have the vision of microscopes and telescopes. Uh, lame feet will run as sprinters and athletes. Speechless tongues shall ring in the praises of Jesus. There'll be political salvation. Enough fake news. Enough stupid courts. Enough unqualified leaders. Enough manipulative politicians and campaigns. All things summed up in Jesus. Jesus on His throne and the government will rest upon His shoulders. Enough in academic salvation. Enough classrooms that ridicule Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Enough ridicule of godlessness, uh, of godliness. Enough ridicule of Christian doctrine and Christian history. The knowledge of the Lord shall cover up all the people as the seas do the land. There'll be residential salvation. Enough government systems that destroy families and undermine marriage and force the poor into public assistance. Uh, enough punishing discipline and hard work. And that day, Sycamore Drive will look just as good as Westlake. Enough, enough, enough. Salvation shall reign because Jesus is coming again. Put your head into that. Put your head into that. And you're going to save yourself many, many a sorrow and trial. But you've got to make sure that you first know Christ as Savior. All the benefits and blessings that we've just described accrue only to those who place their faith in Him. They've stopped believing the silly myth that they're right with God and that they're virtuous and that God accepts them just as they are. Oh, no, 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 no. You repent from all that silliness and foolishness and turn to the cross and resurrection alone and God will save you. Then all the purchased blessings that Jesus has purchased become yours. I think it's time for you to give your heart and life to Him today, don't you? I think it's time for you to say yes to Him. Reject a life outside of Christ, trust the cross and the resurrection alone, and Jesus will make you a saved person. You'll have the chance to do that as we stand together, and let's talk to God about it. Father, thank You for the good news of the gospel. Thank You for Your Word, and we praise You that You've done such a Lord, indescribable work in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift and the blessing of salvation. And we bless you for that forever and forever. And Lord, please forgive us for ever getting bored or getting over it. Help us to stand amazed in his presence and to magnify him forever and forever. And Lord, I want to pray that where we have been uh, lacking zeal in that, that you will show us grace today and renew us and make us strong. Because, God, there are friends here today that need to come to know Jesus. They need to say yes to Him. And then some need to renew themselves. They know Him, but they've drifted. And they need to come back and be amazed once again by Him and live a life that reflects that. Others need to follow you in baptism. Others need to become part of Beach Haven. And we pray your Holy Spirit will work towards that end. As you keep talking to God, why don't you just determine right where you are that you're going to come today. You've heard this plenty of times, or maybe this is your first time, but the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. He's drawing you. He's tugging at you. That discomfort that you feel, that's Him. Just go with it. Anybody that would die and rise again for you is worthy of your trust. Now, we're going to sing, and when we sing, step out from where you are. Member, members will move aside for you. We do that all the time here. And you come see one of our staff members and tell them your spiritual need. Would you do that? I'm going to finish my prayer, and then we're going to sing. Blessed God, thank you. And I pray that you'll gather up all the faith, all the heart, souls, and, Lord, all the sin that is needed today, and that we will all leave here today completely submissive to your will. Thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name.
Amen. You come. Come, every soul by.